the story I'm about to tell you is one influenced by history, definitely by scripture, and a bit by, we'll just call it sanctified imagination. The king had been so impressed with Daniel's uh, God and with Daniel's ability to interpret the dream and, well, to have, the, to know the dream that he had dreamt, that he um, promised and, and eventually elevated Daniel uh, to a high position in his court. And then he, uh, because of Daniel's urging, um, also gave positions in the province of Babylon to each of the, th- the three friends that had stood with him that whole three years of their training. And so now their training years were ended and their assignments had begun. Hananiah, known as Shadrach now, uh, was sent to Akkad as the assistant to the governor. Mishael, known as Meshach in Babylon, uh, he was assigned to be the sheriff of Uruk. And Azariah, now called Abednego, uh, was to be the treasurer of Sippar. And so They said their goodbyes, they wished each other well, they prayed with each other and with Daniel, and they went off to their tasks, likely not to see each other very often. They began to adapt to their roles, to the environment that they were in, uh, to to, uh, all the challenges that they faced, and each one determined in their hearts that what they were going to do, they were going to do well, and they were going to do it to God's glory and they were going to honor him in the spot that they, were, they had landed. As they were adapting and, and growing, and, and some of their roles were changing, um, Shadrach ended up taking over the role of governor after um, the governor passed away. And each one kind of adapted to their environment. And news began to filter back um, over the next couple years that... There had, there had been an attempt on the king's life, an attempted assassination. And it was pretty clear because all the people that were known to be involved had been, had been executed. But um, two of them were from as far away as Damascus. One of them was right there in Babylon from uh, really close. And, and another one was from um, d- just uh, north of Babylon a little ways. And it started to, to be suggested that this wasn't just a few people that wanted the king dead, that there was an insurrection going on. The news had filtered down, but um, a little bit time passed and a decree ends up being per, uh, announced in each of their, their cities. And all the top officials were going to be required to come to Babylon for a test of loyalty. A test that would determine if they were on the king's side or not. And if they did not comply with their test of loyalty, they would be executed as though they were one of the assassins. In each of their roles, they began to assemble their caravans, um, coordinate with the the officials in in their area, and, and head towards Babylon. All the top officials had to come to the plain of Dura that was just outside the capital city. And the plain of Dura is a a special place, um, a place that has these uh, natural 
um, oil wells kind of bubbling up in this tarish gooeyness. And they had found out a long time ago that the stuff was pretty flammable. And so when Nebuchadnezzar, the builder king, decided that he wanted to build a, a palace or a, a hanging gardens or a whatever, he would go to the kilns that would make the, the, clay, um, uh, the clay bricks. He would go to the kilns in the, the plain of Dura, and he would ask them um, to build me so many bricks or whatever. And on the back of each of the bricks was stamped his name. We can see them today, Nebuchadnezzar, um, the, the king of the world, very, very audacious um, statements on the back of these bricks. And, he, and so he had these bricks made in the plain of Dura where the natural oil wells were and the kilns were for making these bricks. And he called them to the plain of Dura, a plain that was big enough that it could, could have all of these various parties and their tents and whatnot. And he called them to this place because it was a place where he had had built a, well, an image. Now, the interesting thing about this is this has been a little bit of time, maybe five years or so since the, the vision. And I think that they had forgotten you know, the Chaldeans and the wise men and the astrologers, the ones who were about to be killed when Daniel said, wait, I, let me ask my God. I think he can reveal the secret. And he did. And they all owed their life to Daniel and Daniel's God. But Daniel had a position that they coveted. And so even though they knew that they owed their life to him, they were scheming and conniving to try to get Daniel out of the picture. And to get Daniel's friends out of the picture. And to get all of Israel out of the picture if they could. And so they, they suggested this loyalty test when the assassins came. Build an image like the one you saw in your dream. And, and Satan in the back of Nebuchadnezzar's mind was, was tweaking again. Trying to get him to go a direction that maybe he shouldn't have gone. And Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten that the God of, of Daniel, the God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who sets up kings and takes them down, who puts nations into positions and removes them at his will, that that God had a plan for Nebuchadnezzar, and it was not for him and his kingdom to live forever. He, he forgot that that was the case. And he looked around at all the stuff he'd built, and his pride began to swell inside of him. And, and he said, you know what? That's a good idea. I'm going to build that image, but it's not going to be made out of a bunch of different metals. It's going to be all gold because the kingdom of Babylon is an everlasting kingdom that will not ever end. Oh, they loved that idea. The Chaldeans thought that, that, that everything was just setting up nicely. And, and so he did. He built uh, a, uh, a platform out of bricks and he, he, he built the the, the metal works and the, and the wood to support it. And then he, he had the plates of gold um, uh, formed out of the gold in his treasuries. Some of it maybe from the gold he brought from, from Jerusalem. Who knows? And, and he, he, he attached these gold plates all around so that when you looked at it from a distance, um, it looked like it was just pure gold from top to bottom. Well, 
Abednego, I'm sorry, Meshach arrived first. The sheriffs were all told that they had to come and help be um, kind of coordinators for all these different caravans and where they would go. And so he's setting out stakes and uh, assigning spots to the various um, officials in different lands. And, and then Meshach came next, I'm sorry, Abednego came next. And, and Abednego's responsibility included making sure they had provisions and food and stuff for their caravan. And so he went first into the city of Babylon and came back with provisions. And then Shadrach came next. Having been made governor, he had a bit of latitude. He could come just before things started. And, uh, and so each of them in their various places around the plain and on the way were thinking about this loyalty test. There is no loyalty test in Babylon or any ancient um, uh, nation that would have been disconnected from worship. You see, in Babylon, uh, the, uh, the, the kings considered themselves to be among the pantheon of gods. I think about it. When Israel thinks about God, they think about a creator God that exists irrespective of them, who's powerful and mighty and present and interested. But that's not what most of the world thought about gods. Gods were more powerful than me, but they kind of looked like me, and they had the same issues as me, and they had the same desires as me, right? And, and so, in, in that world, the king, who had more power than me, was thought to be among the gods. And when the king says, look, let's, um, let's celebrate the nation, and let's celebrate the fact that we've won all these, these wars, and we've captured all of these people, and we've conquered all these nations, and our empire is the largest the world has ever seen, the king is automatically saying, let's praise the gods who gave us victory. Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego all knew when they were on their caravan trip to Babylon, that they would be called to worship a false god. When they had been given a Babylonian name, a name that connected them to a false god, they shrugged their shoulders and said, you know what, it's not my ideal, but I live in this culture now. I'll work with it. When they had been given food that uh, was unhealthy for them, but was sacrificed to those gods, they said, we'd rather not. We'd rather something that's healthy and not connected to those gods. Thank you very much. And God gave them favor, and they didn't have to eat that food. But when it came to worship, there was absolutely no wiggle room in their minds. And so, standing there in their various spots, these three men looking around at the other people in their caravan who had a certain amount of fear in their hearts and were absolutely going to bow down when the thing happened, a proclamation is made. And they, they heard this. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. And again... This issue of worship comes to their heart. And again, they settle it. Absolutely no. We will not worship this God that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And so, it happens. At the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Except for three. 
The king's advisors, the ones who had suggested this statue and this form of loyalty test, they, they uh, you know how you sometimes do. You're supposed to have your, your hands folded and your head bowed and your eyes closed, but you're, you know, your eyes come open a little bit and you look around a little. They, they had done that and they were surveying the landscape and they saw among these three little caravans from nearby cities, they saw three men standing tall when the whole plain had bowed with their faces to the dirt. Three men standing tall. And so they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue. When they hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the zither and the lyre, the harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, that decree also states that those who refuse to obey me obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon, they pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue that you have set up. The king flew into a rage. Bring them here, he says, angry, maybe forgetful of exactly who these men were. It had been a couple years. And for the first time, these three men stand together having individually decided that they will worship no other gods but the God of creation and the God of heaven. They stand together now, united in their choice to defy the king but honor their God. Their hands are tied behind them tightly. The guards roughly lay their hands on them, pushing them towards the king. And the king recognizes them as they come close. And he knows them to be the most loyal of his subjects, the most um, talented of his administrators, and the, the most sincere, authentic, honest people that he knew. He knew that there was no way they could be connected to this assassination attempt, but he also knew that he had to make it absolutely clear that anybody who defied him could not live. And so he he says to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I've set up? Is it true? I'll give you one more chance. If you only, I'll I'll, I'll make the musicians play it again. And if you only bow down, then everything's going to be good. Trust me, I'd never give anybody else a second chance, but you guys are special. And they look at him with resolve, with a kind confidence. And they they say this, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar's pride rose in him again. And despite his his fondness for these three men, he became irate. Pump up the heat, pour in the oil, make it as hot as it can be, white hot, perfectly hot, any, melt the kiln if you need to, these guys are going in. The soldiers, as the the fire got going, the soldiers begin to prepare the three men. They set them in in, in a a row, two on each, uh, one on each side of, of each of the men. 
the fire is getting hot and the three men are probably thinking about the promises God has made. Like in Isaiah 43, where it says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Confidently trusting that this might be their martyrdom, but their God is capable of saving them through the fire. They knew they were going to be thrown into the fire, and so in their minds, they did not pray for deliverance. Instead, they prayed that God would be present with them, and they prayed that God would reveal His glory through them to the world around them. Fire is ready, the command is made, and those two guards at the front take the first man, and and they rush him forward and throw him in, and unfortunately are severely burned in the process. The hot flames that had been pumped up so much scorched their faces and started their clothes on fire and they tumbled away and it was hopeless. Their lungs had been scorched by the smoke and they, they had no hope. They died. The second set of guards did the same thing but tried to be more careful and they too were harmed and, and, and uh, hurt by the flame so much that they ended up dying shortly afterwards. The third set threw the, the third man in, and, and they too came away from the, the furnace and perished as a result of their evil work. But it wasn't obvious that these men in the furnace had been harmed at all. In fact, As people looked around, they started to gasp and wonder, and the king from his throne got up and he looked closer and he saw that they were walking around. And he saw, well, it was amazing that these young men, their their bonds had been melted off, but their clothes weren't damaged and they were fine, it seemed like. They were walking around like it was a normal day. And, And it wasn't that the fact that they were alive that was so astonishing, which It's astonishing enough. It's the fact that in the midst of those three men was one that shone brighter than the hottest flames in the fire. One whose hair was white as snow and whose face shone like the sun. One whose whose legs looked like they were, were bronze that had just been taken out of the fire. It was glowing so much. And And Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. Look, he shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. And then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Their hair hadn't been burned. Their clothes weren't singed. They didn't even smell like smoke. And if you've ever been in an oil fire, you know you do not escape even being near one without the smell of that stuff all over you. Nebuchadnezzar's heart had been melted by the presence of Jesus. He praised the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. 
Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be burned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. There are many lessons that we could learn from this story. Many ideas that we could come to. The first one would be the fact that these three men were faithful and obedient to God's command. A command which said, you must not make for yourself an idol or any kind of an image of anything. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. A God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. They knew God had said this. And they were faithful and obedient to God. We can learn from their example. First of all, not to make a mountain out of a molehill. Sometimes we live in culture and we think every aspect of our culture is horrible. And we have to be completely different. While the Bible calls us to live in the world, but not be children of the world. We're children of God, but to live in the world. And so they took Babylonian names willingly. Maybe not their favorite, but willingly. They didn't oppose. And we too should not make mountains out of molehills. But when it comes to thus says the Lord, they were willing to give their life for obedience. Sometimes we make mountains into molehills and molehills into mountains. Let's keep it right. Let's make sure that what God says is important, is important in our lives. And when God doesn't speak directly on that subject, maybe a little more latitude. We can also see a parallel between this story and the, the stories of prophecy that point to the end time movements of God. I mean, just, just think about it. The language of this chapter is inescapable. And Nebuchadnezzar calls the people... Um, and it says peoples, nations, and languages to come and worship from all of the, the languages and peoples and nations in his kingdom. They all had to come to worship. And notice the focus is worship. It's impossible not to escape the idea of worship. And that if you look in Revelation chapter 5 verse 9, you'll, you'll read this statement. It says, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain. This is worship that's happening. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Jesus is worthy of worship from all nations and languages and tribes and tongues. Or Revelation 14, 6, where it says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven with an ever eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. And it says, the gospel needs to be proclaimed to where? Every nation and tribe and language and people, there's a close connection between the plain of Dura experience and the end of time worship issue. Will you worship the image or will you worship the God who created? That's what the issue was in, in, in Daniel's or in uh, Babylon uh, on the plain of Dura. But then if you go to Revelation 13, 15, you'll find that it's the same thing. I, I think I messed up that. Would you mind, DJ, changing that, uh, that verse from Daniel 3.25 to Revelation 13.15? It should take just a second to do. I want to read this together. 
See, Nebuchadnezzar forced them to worship. He said, you have to worship in this way. And if you don't, then you're going to be killed. And the same thing happens at the end of time. It says, and it was allowed, this is the, 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 um, a, a beast power, a, a nation. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. And so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image to be killed, to be slain. See, the, the parallels are unmistakable. Daniel 3 is our experience when the, the time of trouble comes, the Bible says it's a time of trouble such as never has been. Now, some people would like to suggest that we won't go through that, that that experience won't be for the Christians that follow Jesus. It'll be just for everybody else. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says specifically that we go through the time of trouble. Jacob went through his time of trouble, and so will we. But what God uh, and, and, and that time of trouble will be a life or death choice about worship. It's not too hard to connect these two experiences, Daniel's and, and the future of the Christian church. I think it's really important to recognize that God is the God who saves through the fire, through the water, not from the fire, but through the fire. Were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego afraid, maybe, of being thrown into the fire? I think there was some fear rising up. Inside. The, the adrenaline was pumping, I'm pretty sure. But when they got into the fire, were they hurt by it? No. I, I think sometimes we manufacture a bit more fear of the time of trouble than we need. Because God's promise is that he will save us through it. And, and notice... This is probably the most significant thing that we can notice about this, that, that this is a God, and it's not just the faithfulness of these three young men, the three Hebrew worthies, we call it. It's not just the faithfulness of these three young men, but it's the faithfulness of their God that makes the difference. See, their faithfulness does not save them from the fire, and neither will yours or mine, but God's faithfulness will. At the beginning of, these trip, of their trip, I'm sure these three young men knew their lives were gone unless God preserved them. And they imagined scenarios where God could prevent them from going in, where God could blind the eyes of the officials so they don't see them standing. You know, some way God could save them through this trial. But they knew that they might be martyred. When the trial actually came, they stayed faithful, but God stayed more faithful. And it was by God's power that they were saved in a so miraculous of a way that, that the world knew. And Nebuchadnezzar had to praise God and proclaim it to the world like, uh, um, like uh, if President Biden um, uh, fell in love with Jesus and the truth from God's word. The world would hear something different um, than they are probably hearing now. Nebuchadnezzar told the world about the God because of what God had done, because of his faithfulness. And, and just take a, a little thought about this. God saved them by his presence. See, this isn't just the faithful God who waves his wand and wishes things to be good or who speaks something from a distance. This is the God who's in the fire with them. Where would you rather be? Would you rather be 
in a comfortable, easy chair, looking at, at, at the trouble from a distance and enjoying a nice meal? Or would you rather be in the middle of a fire with God? In our trial, God is present. And I think that's the most significant thing that we can learn from this story. Our circumstances have never mattered as much as the faithfulness of our God. Let's stand as we sing our closing hymn.